May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Wonderful to be uh, here with you. Um, Sheila Andrus is here with me. It was uh, great to come to your 8 o'clock service because we got to come across the Golden Gate Bridge on a truly beautiful morning. And then I was happy to find at the 9 o'clock service that Karen was here. And this is like the nesting Russian dolls. Uh, we also have Amy Cook here with us, uh, from, all from the diocese and staff. And we welcome you. It's great to be with you. I wonder what you think this story that Jesus tells is about. It's one of his really happy stories, isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I hate it when I get thrown into the outer darkness. That, that part is always so difficult and all those gnashing teeth. and It's, uh, it's a difficult story. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a story that Jesus is telling about the nature of prayer about the nature of prayer. Now, Jesus teaches about prayer throughout his ministry. Uh, he teaches in what we call the Sermon on the Mountain. He teaches us that we should pray in secret, that we should not pray to be praised by people, that we should pray out of sincerity, that this is something between us and God. He says, go into a secret room, into your closet, and pray there, not out in public where people can see you and praise you, he says. Those who do that have already received their reward. An interesting idea. He also teaches a model of prayer. So there are requests for him to teach people how to pray. Spiritual teachers, religious leaders are often asked, what's your spiritual life like? How do you order your life? How do you pray? And in response to that, at one point, Jesus seems to have taught a model of prayer. In, in one gospel it says, pray like this. In the other it says, pray these words. But we have it as what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it was translated from Greek back into Aramaic in the early centuries of Christianity. It was probably spoken in Aramaic, and it's a much richer prayer once that has been retranslated out of Aramaic back into English than what we got. Uh, but that is another teaching on prayer that Jesus gives his disciples and us. And then another time, his disciples explicitly say to him, teach us how to pray. And he says a little story, a little story about a widow, a woman who has no support from anyone around her, her network, her life, her everything that gives her security has been taken away with her husband's death. And she goes every day into the court area where an unrighteous judge, and Jesus makes sure we know that this is not like the judges we have in California, but this is an unrighteous judge. And this judge respects neither God nor any human being. And he even says that to himself. He says, I don't care about God. I don't care about people. But this woman is wearing me down. And so I will grant her request. And then Jesus says, that is how you should pray. That is how you should pray. With that kind of persistence. And 
my New Testament teacher, one of my great New Testament teachers, Barbara Hall, said, not as a metaphor, but actually by advocacy, by going and asking for justice. That is how you should pray. That is prayer. That's what the woman does, the widow does. So all these things we know as Jesus' teachings on prayer, but rarely do we think of this story of the talents as a story about prayer. I think it is. It's a story about prayer. I can only recognize it that way by looking through the lens of what we do when we gather every Sunday here. This, the Eucharist, after this opening up of the Word of God, when we, as it were, gather around a table, a holy table, that is called the great prayer of the church. The Eucharist is called the great prayer of the church. So we might imagine that what Jesus does when he takes bread and he takes wine in the last supper that he shares with his followers before his murder, his execution, that that prayer has something essential to teach us about the nature of prayer, along with all the other things that we know as teachings about prayer, that that would teach us about prayer. And so what we see is that it's about receiving from God with gratitude. Receiving from God with gratitude and then giving back to God joyfully with our lives. This is prayer. The receiving and the giving is prayer. And that's what's going on in this story. I get caught up in this story about the talents and who gets three and two and one and what they do with them and the rewards and the angry master and then like the cosmic throwing into outer darkness. But it's all the dynamic, isn't it? It's all the dynamic of receiving. The master gives them the three, the five, the two, the one talents. And then at the end of the journey, at the end of the journey, the giving back to the master what has transpired in our lives. So I wonder if I can learn to pray like that. If I wonder if I can begin to see prayer as the grateful receiving of everything that God has poured into my life, beginning with life itself, the gratitude for that. And then everything that gets layered on top of that, wisdom and love and understanding and experience and maturity, all those things that articulate life, that that is the augmentation of the talents, the life that God has given me. And that is one half of prayer. I often, when I meet with uh, confirmation, folks for confirmation, whatever age they are, whatever age they are, <laughs> I, I ask them to put their hands like this, and I'm going to ask you to do the same, just simply like this. And take a look at your hands as you hold them open and think of this as a gesture that exemplifies prayer that we're exploring today. It is both a letting go and a receiving, isn't it? And as Sheila and I were preparing to go to the UN Climate Summit, we took three images with us to explore with all the thousands of people who came through the public area in Bonn. And one of them was letting go. 
And I uh, spoke to Danny Schofield in our office, one of our co-workers, and I described this to her. We had ambition, we had letting go, and we had personhood. And with letting go, I had in mind a gesture like this, like, you know, letting go. And what Danny did was a gesture like this. And it's better. What she did was better. Because it really is both sides of prayer. It's both the letting go and the receiving. And then that becomes a cycle in my life of receiving and letting go. So this, this, what we do around this holy table, instructs me and it transforms me and it changes me. When we go out from this place, Jesus the Christ who is our host has helped us understand new things about our life. Every week we learn more things about who we are and who we are becoming. But every one of them is patterned by this dynamic of receiving the gift of life from God and then giving it back. Now, I know that you use wheat here that was uh, raised organically at the bishop's ranch uh, by Elizabeth DeRuff and her merry band of farmers. And then that, that is milled and made into beautiful wheat that is then baked by people here at St. John's. So blessed are you among Christians because this is much harder at other places to see this dynamic. The bread itself and the wine are the symbols that carry this understanding of God's gift of life to you and to me and then the giving back of that life to God. This is how it worked. In the preaching of the church and its sacraments for almost these 2,000 years, somebody, if you weren't a farmer, you knew a farmer. If you weren't a farmer, you knew a farmer. And that's how it was when I was a child. Both my parents grew up on farms. I visited those farms. I knew what farming was like. It has been said that it is easier to believe that the bread is the body of Christ and that those wafers are really bread. <laughs> so I think that's true. And that is a way, humorously, to say that we have become alienated from the labor that is represented by the bread and the wine. The labor meaning the content of your lives. The content of your lives. When the bread was brought forward in the early church and all the way up until the modern era, it was recognized by the people of the church as their lives were being carried forward. Because somebody they knew, somebody they knew had worked and labored to bring that bread from seed through germination, through tending, through all the things that can go wrong in a growing season, to milling, to baking, and then brought forward. You can feel it when you're connected in a community like that, that that is whatever it is you do. Being a good husband or a good wife, being a good parent, being a good worker in a certain area, being a scientist, being a teacher, being a priest, any of the things that you do, that those things you know are the labor of your lives and they're being brought forward as the bread's being brought forward and the wine's being brought forward, same process, and presented at the altar, the holy table. In Virginia, the ancient bishops of Virginia would never let it be called an altar. Uh, one of um, the bishops of Virginia came to the area where I was 
erector, and they had put a front on the table to turn it into an altar. And before he started the visitation, he kicked it out. <laughs> he said, there will be no altars in the Diocese of Virginia. They are holy tables. They are holy tables. And so we know what we're doing when we gather around it. We're sharing a meal. <laughs> so um, the, <laughs> the idea is so clear when the bread and the wine are connected to the labor of our lives and all that it is. A little less clear as we have gotten refracted and, and taken away from that. But we understand it. We understand it. Now, there is a problem in the story, and that's why I said, you know, what did you make of this story? It, there's this fearful element in it with the one person who misunderstands. And why does he misunderstand? I think because he's afraid. He says, I knew, Master, that you are a hard man and that you reap where you did not sow. You gather what was not yours. And so I hid what you gave me. And here it is. And instead of being approved of, he's condemned. And this is what makes this such a difficult story. What do we make of that? Well, the people who put our lectionary together, these amazing women and men who prayed their way through the scriptures and put them in a pattern that we could learn from and join them together, put this Thessalonians passage with this gospel. And in it, St. Paul, this is his first letter. This is probably the oldest piece of the New Testament. And he says, people are wondering about the apocalypse. They're wondering when something really super, super bad is going to happen. And it's going to come like a thief in the night for most of the people in the world. Why? Because they live in darkness or shadow or night. And he says, but that, now many people miss this in the passage. He says, but that is not you. That is not you. You live in the light. And thus you see what's going on around you. You understand. You have understanding. Now, in the New Testament, there is a trope about light and night. And it really is fairly straightforward. Light is love. Whenever you have light, it's talking about the clarity that comes with love. The clarity that comes with love. And whenever you have night, you're talking about fear. That's... That's the Gospel of John. That's how St. Paul understands it. This is what's going on. So Christians, I think that Paul is teaching by being a little optimistic. You know, I had teachers who did that with me. I was, you know, not strong in a lot of subjects, and they would say, good job, Mark. And I would know that that was highly optimistic um, <laughs> about it. And I think St. I think Paul's being a bit optimistic about the congregation the Thessalonians congregation. He's saying, you live in the light. You never are afraid. You never kind of self-limit yourselves out of fear. But I do. I do. 
And I think, in truth, the Christian community does. We limit ourselves in fear. Prayer is fearless because we are loved. And it's the acknowledgement of that love because God has given us everything that we have. The content of our lives and everything we will give back is the sign that we have nothing to fear. That's the sign that we have nothing to fear. So this man has buried what he's been given. That is, he's limited his prayers because he does not see how much he has been given and how beautiful the life that he has is, no matter how big or how small it seems to him. You, St. John's, are in the middle of this incredible campaign. Now, I am not asking for money when I bring this up. I'm saying that this is a prayerful thing you're doing. The very first person I approached for Expanding Horizons was a member of this congregation, David Gilmore. And David was, had been elected to the Executive Council. Bob McCaskill, who is our 10-year treasurer of the diocese, said to me, Mark, David Gilmore is a really good person, and you need him on Executive Council. So I appointed him. He was an appointee. And I went to talk to him about Expanding Horizons. And he told me this story. He said, when I was a young man, I was an Episcopalian at All Saints in Pasadena. Now, any of you that know that parish, that's a, yes, that's a big deal parish. It's so full of life, so full of people, so full of ideas uh, and commitments. But they had never done a capital campaign. And this young man, David, was put in charge. He was the chairman of their first ever capital campaign. And this is what he did. This is what he told me. He said, I felt like we needed to learn how to pray first before we did anything else. So he got Agnes Sanford, the woman, the Episcopalian from Los Angeles who started the inner healing movement of the Episcopal Church. Her son was Episcopal priest and psychoanalyst John Sanford. He brought Agnes Sanford to the vestry and to the campaign committee, and he said, Agnes, teach us how to pray. Now, that's all he told me about what he, what he learned, but I was so deeply impressed by that. And now, as I've, three years later, three years later, after his death, less than a year afterwards, I think I've learned more about what he means. I think... What Agnes Sanford taught him is what I have been learning slowly, slowly, which is first, not to fear, and second, to pray out of a fearless place, a place where I trust that God, who has given me this beautiful life that I live, with all of its possibilities and all of its challenges, is the one who is waiting to receive back what I have to give. That's what we're doing together, is praying. So, have no fear. God loves you and has always loved you and is waiting with eagerness to receive the gift of your life 
in the fullness of its time. Amen.